Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an anti-immigrant law just signed by the Texas governor that will allow Texas police to arrest anyone who looks suspicious with brown skin who might not have the right papers on them. Joining us to discuss the collision course between the federal government and the state of Texas over this cruel and unconstitutional power grab by Governor Abbott is James Moore, an Emmy Award-winning television news correspondent who has covered Texas politics and has traveled extensively with every presidential campaign since 1976. He's the founder of Big Ben Strategies and publishes regularly at Texas to the World. Then, with the U.S. organizing 10 nations to police the Red Sea after missile attacks by the Houthis have scared off international shipping, we'll speak with Gregory Brew, an analyst with the Eurasia Group's Energy, Climate and Resources team, focusing on the geopolitics of oil and gas. In addition, he serves as as the Eurasia Group's country analyst for Iran. A historian of modern Iran, oil and U.S. foreign policy, he's the author of The Struggle for Iran, Oil Autocracy and the Cold War, 1951-1954, to and Petroleum and Progress in Iran, Oil Development and the Cold War. And we will discuss his article at Time magazine, How and Why Yemeni's Houthi Rebels Are Poised to Seriously Disrupt the Global Economy. Then finally, with Trump channeling Hitler with outrageous statements that, quote, immigrants are poisoning the blood of our country, we will speak with Jennison Machia, a professor in the Department of Communications at Texas A&M University, where she teaches courses on political communication and presidential rhetoric, an historian of American political discourse, especially discourses about citizenship, democracy, and the presidency, She is the co-editor of The Rhetoric of Heroic Expectations, Establishing the Obama Presidency, and the author of Founding Fictions, as well as Demagogue for President, the rhetorical genius of Donald Trump. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free, without paywalls or constant fundraising, as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is James Moore, an Emmy Award-winning television news correspondent who has covered Texas politics and has traveled extensively with every presidential campaign since 1976. He is the founder of Big Ben Strategies and publishes regularly at Texas to the World. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Moore. Ian, it's always good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And Texas is in the news now with Governor Abbott signing a law that puts him on a collision course with the federal government and the Department of Justice. Does he know what he's doing? Is he grandstanding like the attorney general down there who, you know, love to throw out red meat and what is it, own the libs? I don't know what motivates him. You probably have a better idea than I do. Well, I I don't want to speculate on what goes on inside of his mind because it's a very dark place from what I can tell externally anyway. But I will say that this is it, this is scary in the extreme for a lot of reasons, Ian. And, and first of all, look, there's here's something we can point to immediately, even before this law goes into effect, which will be next March. His Operation Lone Star on the border, which has put thousands of new troopers and thousands of soldiers on the border, Full time has turned it into a war zone, and one of the one of the sort of data points that I look at all the time is the number of police chases that have occurred. And in the Human Rights Watch did a report I don't know two or three months ago 
about the first couple of years of Operation Lone Star. And the police just are driving around and they see somebody who looks suspicious and this person might have an outstanding ticket or something and they're compelled to run away from the police. There have been 74 fatalities and almost 200 people with various types of injuries. And, and, and that's before this law was signed. Now, the signature of the governor on this new measure will allow state and local police to pick up anyone who is suspected of entering Texas illegally. So what does that mean? How do they know if they're driving by in a car and they look at somebody walking down the street with a backpack on and they look like they have brown skin and they might be Mexican or Mexican-American, all a cop has got to do is say, you know what, that guy looks suspicious and pull him over and arrest him or detain them or make their lives miserable in one form, fashion or another uh, without charging them with anything because there's nothing they can be charged with. Although this law does allow for first misdemeanors and then felonies, actually, that can reach up to 20 years in prison if you come into the U.S. more than twice without being documented and if you have some sort of crime in your background. So what this amounts to, in my view, is kind of a show-us-your-papers law, the kind of nonsense that existed in pre-war Germany that controlled the travel of Jews across that country. And there was something similar back in 2012. I don't know, you may recall, in Arizona. And Arizona, under its governor at that time, was challenging the federal government's authority, which is stipulated in the Constitution to control and protect the border and to manage immigration. Arizona challenged it, and in a narrow ruling, uh, the Supreme Court upheld the federal government's right and, and told Arizona they couldn't do what they were doing. I think Abbott wants a rechallenge because we have a more conservative court now, and I think he believes the state has a right uh, to put up razor wire and container, shipping containers and floating barriers and, and turn the Texas-Mexico border into a war zone. And same thing's probably going to happen in California, Arizona, and New Mexico. Well, the U.S. Representative Vincent Gonzalez of Texas has sent a letter to Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, asking him to immediately deal with this situation because it's clearly the feds have jurisdiction over the border, immigration, defense, all of the issues that are involved in this power grab of the Texas governor, Greg Abbott. Yeah, that's absolutely the case, Ian. And what what this does is it does not solve anything. All it does is create further chaos, further harm, and further injury. You know, he has two cases already pending on appeal in federal court. Federal courts have both times told him that first his floating barrier that had the razor balls in the Rio Grande, which is a navigable international waterway, was violating federal treaties and agreements with Mexico and had to be removed. He appealed that, and now it's in the Fifth Circuit Court. And then the other one was the federal government was using Customs and Border Patrol agents to cut the razor wire to rescue people who were trapped in the water, who were dying from heat or thirst, and, and pull them out. And Abbott appealed that. The federal court said the government has the authority to cut these wires, and uh, the governor of Texas said, no, you don't. And that went to that went to court and and the state lost and he appealed it. Now that's in federal appeals court. And I think that's what he wants to happen here. He wants it to go to the conservative Supreme Court and get a ruling. But, you know, I've been down there. I live down there. And of course, as a correspondent in this state for many, many years, you know, I was on the border all the time. And what's happening is just I, I can't I don't even think I can articulate it because it's it's just beyond comprehension that that we turn what is a great culture with our biggest economic partner into something akin to the Berlin Wall. It's simply crazy and you're talking about you're talking about a river. They have a saying down on the Rio Grande, the river has never divided us. It it has always united us. And it's not that way anymore. Abbott's building a wall. There's pressure for Biden to rebuild the wall, and he has authorized a, a four-mile section of it in, in uh, Rio Grande City, which is Starr County, and people there are angry about that. Um, and, and this thing, it seems that nobody 
and this is mostly I'm speaking about Republicans because all they do is complain about it. But in their complaining, they've offered no solutions. And now they're, they're creating a linkage to the funding for the war in Ukraine. So what's happening on the Texas-Mexico border is now resonating and all the way over to, you know, NATO in, in, in Europe and in Eastern Europe and what's going on there. And nobody hmm. seems to be taking control of it. And, and it's, it's a sad thing to see in person, I can tell you. Well, obviously, though, Jim, it's a clever ploy on the part of the Republicans to make life miserable for Biden, because whatever Biden does on the border in order to free up funds for Ukraine is going to anger the Democratic base and diminish Latino votes. So what I don't understand, though, is how right-wing is Texas? I mean, this recent disgraceful situation with the woman having to leave the state to get an abortion after the Attorney General intervened and the Texas Supreme Court ruled against her as if they know anything about second-guessing her own doctors. I mean, the rest of this, the country was outraged, at least a huge percentage, a majority. Uh, are they getting the message? or I mean, what's so? is there a disconnect between the people of Texas and its incredibly right-wing government, governor, attorney general, and Supreme Court. What I hope is that this latest ruling in the Kate Cox case, uh, she was carrying a child with a, with a, a genetic disease called trisomy 18, which destroys organs in the in utero. But but if a child should be delivered, they rarely last more than 24 hours to a week or something. And and she had two children, and she wanted more. And but she needed to get this 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 dying or dead baby out of her, and she got a legal exception as as you indicated. And and but the attorney general here, who's you know living under multiple indictments, has been impeached. I mean, it's it's very much like Trump on a national scale. He is a statewide version of Trump, and and he took it to the Supreme Court, and of course, conservative Supreme Court, which has which has nine. Uh, Republican conservative justices, one of which, before he was elected, bragged about being arrested 37 times protesting at abortion clinics. So that was a foregone conclusion. And before they even ruled, she left the state to get her abortion. But I'm hoping that her case is used nationally in, in the campaigns because it is a perfect example of the kinds of garbage that women are having having to suffer and deal with in Texas and all the other states in this country that are making abortion impossible for women to get. And, and you know, in Texas, prior to the passage of uh, our what is called our trigger law, which is the which is the immediate heartbeat ban of any kind of abortion, um, that there were 50,000 abortions a year in Texas. And last year there were 34. So what does that mean? That means that there are about 50,000 women minus 34 who are dealing now with a child they didn't want or they're connected to a man they'd made a mistake with or they're struggling to find a way to pay for a family they can't afford. Their lives have been interrupted. Their educational plans have changed. All of that or else they have have had to endure the uh, the challenge of going out of state and dealing with emotional trauma of travel and sneaking away it's really it it's it's really one of the most horrific things that you can imagine that would happen to someone dealing with that and and it's astounding to me that it at this time in our country's history and particularly this state's history that this kind of thing can be transpiring but but here we are and i and to answer your question ultimately i'm rambling like a politician but to answer your question i would say to the to, how right-wing is Texas? We're the most extreme right-wing place in the country, I think. You know, our, I think our state motto ought to be something like, you know, thank God for Missouri. That there's, you know, there's there's not much that's close to us in terms of extremist politics. And now whether the voters are getting a clue, I don't know. There's always this optimism from Democrats in Texas that perhaps people are finally getting a clue. And my hope is that the Kate Cox case rises to a national level and has an impact because abortion 
is obviously a motivating factor for people to turn out and to vote against Republicans. And it's it's my great hope that that if any good comes out of what she has endured, it is that people people finally are getting it and realizing that this isn't about that Republicans aren't they're not pro-life pro-life, they're pro-birth. They don't take care of babies after they're born. And it's about controlling women. And and people have to undo this with a vote because other than that, it requires revolution. And who the hell wants that? Well, I thank you for joining us, Jim. But the fact that uh, Ted Cruz and, and Senator Cornyn ducked questions about Kate Cox, it's, they clearly know that it's not <laughs> it's a losing issue for them. So maybe there's some hope in the next election. Um, I hope you're right. So I th- thank you for joining us, Jim. I appreciate it. My pleasure as always, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with James Moore, who's an Emmy Award-winning television news correspondent who has covered Texas politics and has traveled extensively with every presidential campaign since 1976. And he's the founder of Big Ben Strategies and publishes regularly at Texas to the World. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing how the U.S. has organized 10 nations to police the Red Sea after missile attacks by Houthis have scared off international shipping. Down Mexico way That's where they fell in love When stars above came out to play Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Gregory Brew, who's an analyst with the Eurasia Group's Energy, Climate, and Resources team focusing on the geopolitics of oil and gas. In addition, he serves as the Eurasia Group's country analyst for Iran, a historian of modern Iran, oil, and U.S. foreign policy. He's the author of The Struggle for Iran, Oil, Autocracy, and the Cold War, 1951-1954, and Petroleum and Progress in Iran, Oil, Development, and the Cold War. And he has an article at Time magazine, How and Why Yemen's Houthi Rebels Are Poised to Seriously Disrupt the Global Economy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gregory Brew. Thanks, Ian, for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us, Gregory. And why are the Houthis getting involved or, in effect, taking on international commerce? The United States has announced a 10-nation force to counter Houthi attacks in the Red Sea. And obviously it has something to do with the war in Gaza. But I thought they had their hands full uh, with the civil war in Yemen. So why are they doing what they're doing? So the Houthis are an interesting group. As you note, they are rebels. They are not the uh, identified international government of Yemen. Uh, They are a rebel group that took control of about half the country in 2014 and have been uh, bogged down in a decade-long war against both uh, Yemen's recognized government, but also against the nations of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, uh, which were heavily involved uh, in Yemen, fighting the Houthis for years and years. That war has been slowly coming to an end over the last two years. Uh, The Houthis are on the verge of signing a ceasefire agreement with Saudi Arabia that would allow the Saudis to exit. Uh, And that background explains, or at least partially explains, why the Houthis are doing what they're doing. The other reason is that the Houthis are a member of the so-called resistance front. Uh, This is an international, this is a regional group of actors that include Hezbollah in Lebanon, various uh, Hamas in Gaza, of course, various militias in Iraq and Syria, but it's a group that looks to Iran for leadership, funding, and support. Uh, So the Houthis are allies of Iran. They receive funding, support, weaponry from Iran, and they see themselves as participating in uh, the war between Israel and Hamas. Now, we've seen violence between Israel and Hezbollah along Israel's northern border. We've seen attacks from various uh, militias in Iraq and Syria against U.S. forces there. And the Houthis have been participating by attacking local shipping. These attacks have been going on for the last several weeks. Last week, they escalated. And the way they escalated were the Houthis had claimed they would attack only Israeli ships or ships bound for Israel, again, as sort of part of their uh, participation in the war, their way of putting pressure on Israel. 
as a member of the resistance front. But last week, they widened the scope of their attacks. They started going after ships that had no clear connection to Israel. Uh, and as a result, shipping companies have ordered their ships to uh, avoid the Red Sea. The United States, as you noted, has, has put together an international task force to uh, monitor uh, Red Sea traffic, to increase the military presence in the region. And all of this is in response to Houthi attacks against uh, commercial shipping in connection both to what's going on in Yemen and to the war in Gaza. So the missiles, though, that the Houthis are using to fire at Israel and also the short ship missiles that they've been firing, one of which hit a ship in the Red Sea, where do they come from? Well, that's a very interesting question. The lineage of, this, of these weapons uh, uh, goes back uh, several decades, in fact. So when you're looking at the kinds of missiles that the Houthis are using, they're getting the design, they're getting the specifications for these weapons from Iran. As I mentioned, Iran has been backing the Houthis for years. Uh, the Houthis are uh, allies, uh, proxies, if you like, for Iran. Uh, so they've been receiving weaponry from Iran for, for quite a long time. And this includes anti-ship ballistic missiles. Uh, the Houthis have uh, actually made history by using an anti-ship ballistic missile for the first time successfully in combat uh, against a ship several days ago. Um, so much of their weaponry originates from Iran. They are likely producing some of it themselves based on designs from Iran, uh, which suggests a certain degree of self-sufficiency. Uh, but the armaments they're getting are coming uh, from Tehran. They're coming as a result of this link, this uh, alliance between Iran and the Houthis. But these anti-ship uh, missiles are also cruise missiles as well as ballistic missiles, reasonably sophisticated technology. You said that Iran doesn't deliver the top-of-the-line products that they're, for example, delivering to the Russians at the moment. Yes, there's some debate as to precisely what the Iranians have been furnishing the Houthis with. Uh, earlier this year in September, the, the Houthis had uh, something of a victory parade in Sana'a, the capital of Yemen. And during this parade, they showed off the kinds of weaponry that they had accumulated. This included uh, aircraft, but primarily drones and missiles. And the parade did suggest that, yes, they've received or constructed or reverse engineered a variety of both ballistic and cruise missiles. One of the missiles they fired at a ship last week was identified by the United States government as an anti-ship cruise missile. Uh, and then several days later, a projectile was identified as an anti-ship ballistic missile. So they do seem to possess both uh, in numbers which allow them to launch them uh, with a certain degree of frequency, uh, as well as drones, which they've been launching quite consistently for the last several weeks, both against commercial shipping and against Israel itself. So this would all suggest that the degree of sophistication in their arsenal is quite advanced and gives them the capacity to certainly hit commercial shipping, uh, as well as potentially targets in Israel as well. But Yemen is the poorest country in the, in the Middle East, and it's been involved in a bloody civil war in which over 300,000 people have been killed. The country is a basket case. The UN said it was the, most, the worst humanitarian disaster on the planet. I guess that's now been eclipsed by what's happening in Gaza. So the question arises, Gregory, how do they pay for all this stuff? I mean, where do they get the money for all this weaponry? weaponry? That's an excellent question, and it also raises the question of, you know, how long can the Houthis afford to, uh, to, to, to continue these kinds of attacks, and also how long can they afford to, you know, posture themselves as participants in the war against Israel when they have significant domestic problems to handle. As you noted, Yemen is uh, in, a, in a case of economic, social, political crisis. Uh, the Houthis do have to get their house in order to some extent. They have bills they have to pay. They have an army they have to maintain, they have domestic problems, they have domestic factions, which they've been uh, trying to balance one against the other. Um, how they're paying for all this, I mean, they do receive support from Iran, although likely not as much support as they used to. Uh, I believe they raised some revenue uh, themselves by using the territory that they control. They control about half of Yemen. Um, but given their emphasis on you know, building up this military might, I mean, that's clearly where their attentions are. They're not too interested in solving the humanitarian problems of the Yemeni people. They seem much more interested in, in posturing and in, in, in participating in this war against Israel. Now, it's possible that their priorities could shift the longer this crisis continues, but at the moment, they seem more than willing 
to fire their projectiles, to fire their drones, to rattle the saber against both the U.S. and Israel, and then against this international task force. I mean, just yesterday, a Houthi spokesperson said that the Houthis would now consider any ships connected to the task force or connected to countries in the task force as legitimate targets. So I think it's very likely that we'll continue to see these attacks for the foreseeable future. But in the meantime, as your article, uh, How and Why Yemen's Houthi Rebels Are Poised to Seriously Disrupt the Global Economy, uh, Gregory, the, the article makes it clear that already the global economy has been disrupted. Major shipping companies are shying away from the Red Sea and taking the longer route around Africa, around the, the Cape. And also, you mentioned as well that there are problems with the Panama Canal that I wasn't aware of. But the number one loser that you point out is Egypt because traffic through the Suez Canal has dropped dramatically and therefore the revenues to an already shaky government uh, led by an authoritarian in Egypt is, is causing problems. He's got enough problems, Sisi, with the Sinai, with Israel and, and Gaza. So walk us through some of the consequences already, which of course are likely to get worse. Right. So we've already seen um, diversion of commercial traffic. Uh, I should note that traffic through the Red Sea hasn't stopped completely. There are still ships moving in and out of the Red Sea through the Bab al-Mandeb Strait between Yemen and Djibouti. Uh, So it's not as though traffic has come to a complete halt, but it has begun to decline. Uh, And it will probably likely increase that decline as the the days and the weeks continue, if the Houthi attacks do in fact continue in the intensity that we've seen them. Uh, As I note in the article, Egypt is the big loser here. Egypt depends Uh, to some extent, uh, on fees, transit fees through the Suez Canal. So it is likely to come under increased fiscal pressure uh, if this crisis continues and if traffic through the Suez Canal uh, falls uh, significantly. Uh, The last time this happened, of course, was in 2021, when a vessel became wedged inside the canal. It took months for it to become dislodged, and Egypt suffered quite significantly during that period. Uh, So Egypt does stand to lose, and that could suggest a way in which this disruption also affects the crisis in Gaza, because if Egypt feels increasing pressure from the Houthi action, it's possible that the Sisi government uh, will exert pressure against Iran or against the Houthis to try to end the Houthi action. But it's also very possible that Egypt will look to Israel to end its offensive in Gaza uh, and potentially bring uh, an end to the Houthi attacks, since the Houthis claim their attacks are you know, designed to stop the Israeli offensive. So that is one uh, avenue in which this is going to disrupt things regionally. I mean, globally, economically, the diversion of traffic around the Red Sea will increase costs quite considerably. Any good that is moving from Asia to Europe will now have to undertake a voyage that's over 3,000 kilometers longer by going around the Af- Africa than if it had been possible to go through the Red Sea. That will increase costs c- to consumers in Europe, uh, Europe, which, of course, is already under strain from higher energy costs linked to the uh, Russia's war in Ukraine. Uh, as Europe receives quite a lot of its energy from the Middle East in the form of oil and natural gas, this will add, this will compound energy costs to Europe. Uh, when this crisis began several days ago, oil prices jumped, uh, but natural gas prices in Europe jumped even more. Uh, spot markets for gas in Europe immediately registered the increase in costs that this will likely, uh, this will likely cause to the markets there. So, yes, we're seeing a disruption. It's compounded by what you noted. There's an additional disruption to the Panama Canal where there have been significant problems at moving ships through the canal due to uh, the lack of water in the region. So we're seeing compounding supply chain crises happening at various points in the world that are increasing costs at a time where I think central banks are still very concerned about a return of inflation. You know, there, there there are signs from the U.S. Fed that inflation is coming to an end, that maybe we can enter a cycle of falling rates. But if inflation does spike back up as a result of these increasing costs, of products, goods, and energy, then it's, you know, it's possible we might see increased inflationary pressure. So I note in the article that this is the beginning of a potential major disruption that could last weeks, if not months. But of course, we're already seeing the disruptive effects happening uh, immediately, as soon as this crisis has started. But is that to say that Iran is stirring the pot here, since they're obviously connected, and whether or not the Houthis are acting as their proxies, as Hezbollah is in the north, although Hezbollah is restraining itself from entering a full-scale war. Houthis don't seem to be restrained by anybody. So if Iran is pulling the strings here, is their motive to raise the price of oil? 
uh, therefore provide them with increased revenues? I, I think that that may be part of it. I mean, I think Iran is still very, it's very conscious of a potential escalation in this conflict. The Iranian approach to the crisis in the Middle East from the very beginning has been to, you know, to try to take advantage of it, to exert pressure on Israel and the United States. But like Hezbollah, Iran is very conscious of the potential for escalation. It, it, it doesn't want a direct confrontation with Israel and the United States, not directly, right, where, where Iran is engaging the U.S. and Israel. The Houthis play an interesting role in this, in this dynamic, because from Iran's point of view, the Houthis are pretty secure, right? They're over a thousand kilometers away from Israel. They've, they're on the verge of winning their war against Saudi Arabia. They're very heavily armed. Uh, Iran exerts a certain amount of influence and control over the Houthis, but the Houthis also have reasons and interests to do what they want. And I think Iran is happy to see uh, the Houthis uh, making trouble and raising costs and putting pressure on the U.S. and Israel. And I, I, I'm not entirely sure if Iran is necessarily pulling the strings, but I think Iran is happy to see the Houthis take this kind of action. And also on the potential of escalation. I mean, we're seeing the U.S. putting together an international task force to protect commerce. There's a possibility that the U.S. might decide to take military action against the Houthis with missile or airstrikes or something of that nature. And I, I don't think Iran would necessarily respond too aggressively in that event. I think Iran has thus far shown it's pretty comfortable with its proxies and allies taking the hits while Iran itself is able to sort of sit on the sidelines. So, you know, Iran, as I mentioned, this fits within their broader strategy. I don't think they're particularly worried about the potential for blowback from the Houthi action. But if the Houthis were to step up their attacks, if they were to go after more ships, if they were to start shooting at warships, or if they were to start shooting at Saudi Arabian targets, if they were to threaten Saudi Arabia and potentially draw the Saudis or another Arab state into the conflict, I do think Iran would maybe exert some influence to pull them back to keep the conflict, conflict from escalating to the point where Iran itself starts to be threatened. Well, just in closing, though, I'm surprised that the Saudis aren't already upset about what's happening. These missiles fly over their territory at any rate. They've had, throughout the war, missiles have been fired at the Saudi capital and at, at its oil facilities as well, which the Iranians uh, some time back also sent a lot of missiles in and basically almost shut down Saudi Arabia's uh, abkek. So what's the situation vis-a-vis -vis the Saudis? I mean, are they... They just want this thing to get over, this war. They've lost it. Uh, but at the same time, you'd think that they wouldn't be very happy about what's happening. No, certainly not. I, I don't think the Saudis are at all pleased about how this uh, crisis is unfolding. But it, it, it's worth pointing out that, yes, I mean, the Saudis were involved in the war in Yemen for a long time. They were very confrontational towards Iran. Of course, Iran and Saudi Arabia are regional competitors. Uh, but some things have changed in the last 12 to 18 months. We've seen... Uh, yes, Saudi Arabia taking steps to pull itself out of the war in Yemen. We saw the Chinese brokered Iran-Saudi uh, normalization deal in March and an increase in diplomatic relations between Riyadh and Tehran over the last uh, six to eight months. There's a conscious effort in both capitals to improve relations. They're not going to become friends, but Iran and Saudi are now a little bit more conscious of maintaining the stability in the Persian Gulf and avoiding a return to the days of Abu Qaeq, where, you know, in 2019, you did have massive missile and drone attacks against Saudi oil facilities. So the Saudis don't want to return to those days. They don't want the Houthis to start shooting at them. And that explains in part why, why this, you know, Saudi Arabia has not joined the international task force that the U.S. has put together. The Saudis don't want to get dragged back into Yemen. They certainly, you know, want these attacks to come to an end but not uh, to the extent that they're willing to take the U.S. side, to position themselves against the Houthis, against Iran, and implicitly sort of on the side of Israel, because, of course, the Saudi position on the war publicly has been to you know, condemn Israel, to criticize Israel, to maintain the cohesion among Arab states. But I, I, think, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think the ideal outcome for Saudi Arabia is for this conflict to end and for the security of the Red Sea to return to what it was uh, before these attacks began. Well, Gregory Brew, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's my pleasure. And again, I'll be speaking with Gregory Brew, who is an analyst with the Eurasia Group's Energy, Climate and Resources team focusing on the geopolitics of oil and gas. In addition, he serves as the Eurasia Group's country analyst for Iran, an historian of modern Iran, oil, 
and U.S. foreign policy. He's the author of The Struggle for Iran, Oil Autocracy and the Cold War, 1951-1954, and Petroleum and Progress in Iran, Oil Development and the Cold War. And he has an article at Time magazine, How and Why Yemen's Houthi Rebels Are Poised to Seriously Disrupt the Global Economy. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into how Trump is channeling Hitler with outrageous statements that immigrants are poisoning the blood of our country. Trains and boats and planes took you away, but every time I sing my prayer, and if my prayer can cross the sea, the trains and the boats and planes will bring you back, back home to me. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jennifer Machia, who's a professor in the Department of Communications at Texas A&M University, where she teaches courses on political communication and presidential rhetoric, an historian of American political discourse, especially discourses about citizenship, democracy, and the presidency. She's the co-editor of The Rhetoric of Heroic Expectations, Establishing the Obama Presidency, and author of Founding Fictions, as well as Demagogue for President, the Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jennifer Machia. Thank you for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us. And on Saturday, Donald Trump spoke at a New Hampshire hockey rink riled up the crowd using language out of Nazi Germany, uh, saying that migrants from Africa, Asia, and South America were poisoning the blood of our country. And, of course, that parroting Hitler's uh, Mein Kampf, where he referred to the German blood being poisoned by Jews. And earlier, of course, he referred to his political rivals as vermin, another anti-Semitic reference used by the Nazis. So, uh, and I could go on on Sunday in the, at a rally in Reno, Nevada, then he went further and claimed that evidence that migrants are coming from prisons and mental institutions and, you know, saying that the U.S. is now a haven of bloodthirsty criminals, etc., etc. So what I find disturbing is that there must be an audience for this kind of stuff. I mean, nobody seems to be able to pull this guy over. What's your understanding about what kind of constituency there is in this country that is comfortable with fascist rhetoric? Yeah, it's a really important question. Um, You know, so scholars of political psychology and political science who analyze different uh, personalities and how those personalities... um, you know, translate into political orientations. They explain that about 40%, sometimes they say 35, 35 to 40% of Americans have what's known as right-wing authoritarian personality. And um, in some arguments and analyses, that is a genetic disposition. Um, Some people think that it's learned from their parents um, or some combination of those two things. What um, researchers have found is that a lot of times that right-wing authoritarian personality is latent, but that it can be activated. And um, what that means is that these are people who believe strongly in hierarchy, whether that hierarchy is um, you know, a male-led uh, nation or if it's a white-led nation or a Christian nation, you know, there are different versions of how that plays out. Um, but they're also very um, tied to group norms and very defensive of those norms. And so for them, arguments about immigration um, or migration or um, especially framing it uh, as an invasion using disgust words that activate people's disgust response, all of those things are directly targeted, I don't like to use the word like targeted, but they're directly targeted um, to right-wing authoritarians to activate them as members of the posse. Um, People who have a right-wing authoritarian personality, 
they are um, they have a very strong posse response, which means that they want to act to defend group norms, to defend the hierarchy, um, to keep things you know orderly and controlled. And so Donald Trump is um, using very sophisticated appeals that would directly activate these right-wing authoritarian voters, people who want a strong leader, who believe that there is chaos and that only a strong leader acting as a dictator or you know, a strong man of some kind um, would be able to fix what ails the United States. Uh, so I don't believe that it's by accident. It's very consistent with what he has done um, since 2015, and it works very well for him. So if it's 40% that are in this world of wanting a strong leader and an authoritarian, what about the 60%? Is the 60% in this country, as Liz Cheney has said, sleepwalking into a dictatorship? They are. Um <laughs> And that's because um, it's very interesting also that the authoritarian, right-wing authoritarian personality, they are driven, they are very insistent that their values and their norms, their hierarchy, their version of normal, um, that it is the good version and that it ought to be instituted in government. Um, they are very insistent on it, and they will make great efforts to make sure that it happens. Whereas the rest of us, the 60%, um, you know, we're sort of like, well, that's okay. You know, you do you, but democracy means that, you know, there's give and take and that, um, you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And that, of course, your perspective is just as valid as ours is. And right. So it's the paradox of democracy itself. Right. Um, and so you're probably familiar with this paradox, but it says that we should tolerate everything except for intolerance, right? That it's the intolerance that is actually the danger and the threat to democracy. And so we're at this point where 60% of us are still tolerating the intolerant right-wing authoritarians, um, not recognizing that, in fact, it's a threat to democracy itself. Well, when are they going to wake up then? Uh, tr Trump <laughs> himself said the other day, uh, you know, Hannity kept trying to give him these softball ways to get out of the fact that he's been talking about dictatorship and acting like a dictator and, and coddling up to dictators uh, as he's done uh, throughout his first term in the presidency. And eventually Trump just settled for saying, yeah, I'd be a dictator on day one. Um but there's no question that this is this is out there and he's owning it. So what at what point do this 60 percent in this country stop sleepwalking and wake up? That's a, another great question. I mean, obviously, you know, you and I are talking about it. There's lots of coverage of this. Um, you know, it's in the political news every day. I think that it's really difficult for people to recognize um, when authoritarianism is growing, right? When a nation is moving towards authoritarianism. Um, political science research on democratic erosion, democratic black backsliding, um, you know, they show example exam after example of just regular folks like you and me um, in other nations like Yugoslavia, for example, and they're like, yeah, you know, we were going to the movies, we were going on vacations, and then all of a sudden, uh, people started to say things, that, you know, that were weird, um, you know, like, you shouldn't say that, or you shouldn't do that. And then the next thing they knew, you know, the government had completely shifted. Um, and I think that that's kind of the way that it works these days. Um, there isn't, um, you know, sort of a big coup moment um, where you can see, you know, uh, a sort of civil war happen. Instead, it's kind of like Liz Cheney said, a kind of slow walk um, towards authoritarianism. Um, and you're right, Donald Trump, he's certainly not shy about it. Uh, you know, when Hannity asked him that question, Hannity was phrasing it like, you know, they're trying to get you by accusing you of being a dictator, you know, the lamestream media or the fake news or whatever, you know, they're making this wild accusation. And here it is me prevent presenting you with an opportunity to deny it. 
And Trump doesn't deny it. And then Hannity's like, well, surely, let's give you another chance to deny it. And he doesn't deny it. And then Trump is so proud of himself that he explains to the audience, right, what has just happened. He's like, Hannity wants me to deny this, but I'm here to tell you, right, I'm going to be a dictator. Um, and the reason why he does that, uh, and I think that this is really interesting uh, and maybe an unusual take, is because Donald Trump would rather be seen as a strong man, as a dictator, than he would be seen as a loser. And right now, Donald Trump is very worried that he looks like a loser, and he should, right? He lost the popular vote in 2016. His party, with him as its head, lost the 2018 election. He lost the 2020 election. His party lost the 2022 election, right? He is actually a loser. He's a political loser. Um, he's in court cases all over the country. He looks like he's losing those cases, right? Um, you know, this is a man who hates to lose. He divides the world into winners and losers. And he sees himself uh, as a winner. And he's worried that we will see him as a loser. In order for him to convince those right-wing authoritarian voters that he's a winner, he needs to claim the mantle of a strong man. He needs to say he's a dictator. But that's not to say, uh, Jennifer, that he's had a lifelong fascination with Hitler. I mean, his ex-wife Ivana says that he kept Hitler's speeches in a drawer by the, by the bed when he was at the World War I memorial in France. He said to the then Chief of Staff General Kelly that uh, Hitler had some you know, great ideas and really did some good stuff, which shocked the hell out of General Kelly. I mean, there's en endless uh, examples of his affection for the Nazis. And his father apparently was very much in that mode as well. And of course, when you talk about him not wanting to be a loser, uh, his father used to berate him as a young kid. You've you got to be a killer, son. You've got to be a killer. You know, and he's, of course, he's, in his so-called professional life as a real estate developer, he hung out with mob bosses and Roy Cohn was his lawyer. So he has a fascination for, for thugs and tough guys and all this stuff. So that is very much a part of the mix, isn't it? Oh, it absolutely is. And what Donald Trump doesn't seem to recognize is that Hitler is one of the world's greatest losers, right? Hitler was a loser uh, when he took over Germany um, and, uh, you know, certainly ended as a loser. And so it's not bunker. something that, right. huh? In the bunker. In the bunker, yeah. I mean, so Dorothy Thompson um, was a, a, a international um, affairs foreign correspondent, and she wrote, uh, I think it was 1934, she interviewed Hitler and wrote about it um, and then published a little book about it, and it's uh, I Saw Hitler. And in it, she explains that Hitler, you know, wants to present himself as the ubermensch, right, as the overman or the strongman. But, you know, when you meet the guy, he's a real disappointment. She's like, the guy can't hold a conversation. He's pounding the table. He wants to make, you know, speeches instead of having the give and take of conversation. He's nervous. He's unattractive. Uh, she explains that he wanted to be an artist, but he was rejected. So then he thought, well, I'll be an architect. And he was rejected from the architecture school. So he ended up being a house painter on new constructions. You know, she's like, this guy is just a constant failure. And it's the fact that he is such a constant failure that perhaps is his greatest appeal for Germans because he looks at them and he sees a, a nation of losers and he lifts them up. And he says, you know, you might be a loser in all these other ways, but the one thing that you're great at is in this race question, right? And so he uses this appeal against them. Hitler hated her article so much that he had her banished from Germany. Um, you know, she's the first foreign correspondent to be sent home uh, from Germany. And it was because he hated the fact that he called she called him a loser. But Hitler also told the German people that you're losers because of the Jews, right? And isn't Trump That's doing right. the same thing, saying, you know, you've all been ripped off and, uh, you, you know, not so much you're losers, but you're, you're being undermined and shortchanged by immigrants. 
That's right. It, that is the formula, right? So the way that fascists, authoritarians, uh, whatever you want to call them, uh, dictators, the way that they take over nations and erode democracy is the same formula all the time, right? Which is to say they convince their followers that politics is war and the enemy cheats. Full stop. That's the first major premise of all of these takeovers. Because what it says is that politics isn't the give and take of you know, policy making. It's not about resolving differences and coming to consensus. But instead, it's a war. It's us versus them. Right. So it's not, you know, a healthy polarization where you have balance and differing viewpoints. But instead, it's we must destroy them. They are enemies. And not only are they enemies, but they're untrustworthy and they cheat. Right. So there's nothing left to preserve in democracy, they say, because they have already perverted democracy. Democracy is already a sham. It's already, um, you know, a fake. Right. And so uh, they try to convince nations that um, they are the only solution to solve these problems, that they will right the ship of state, they will destroy the enemies, they will be their retribution. All of those things that you hear Donald Trump say are all the things that autocrats have always said when they're trying to erode democracy. But there's also the fact that I guess Hitler certainly had a cruel streak, but Trump does too. I mean, Miles Taylor, who was anonymous, who was the first uh, insider in the Trump White House to go public, he's told me that in many of the conversations that Trump had, he was chief of staff to Kirsten Nielsen, and in the presence of Kelly, the chief of staff and Kirsten Nielsen, Trump would say that he wants uh, the Marines to shoot pregnant Mexican women in the legs crossing the border. And he waxed lyrical about putting razor blades and razor wire on the tops of the fence so that they cut their hands. And I mean, this is this is who he is. And it seems to be a part of his fascination with Kim Jong-un, who's one of the most bloody dictators on the planet, who, who killed his own half-brother with a weapon of mass destruction and blew away his uncle with a, a firing squad using anti-aircraft cannons. So just blew him to pieces. I mean, and Putin, of course, is unbelievably cruel and has killed hundreds of his own people in order to gain power back in 1999. So is that a part of it? Is that is cruelty is also another component of these kind of people? Absolutely. I mean, Donald Trump has shown us who he is. Um, he has shown us that he's cruel he has shown us that he is sexist. He has shown us that he will not relinquish power if given power, right? He has shown us that he is completely unqualified to hold an office or a position of trust and responsibility in the United States. That has not changed his support. Um, you know, I've been really intrigued by the sort of dual reports about what's going on in the Republican Party in the primary process. Uh, on the one hand, you know, you, you have all of these quotes from Trump supporters at these rallies where they say things like, well, you know, my family tell me that I'm a dictator when I tell them to clean the house. And so maybe what this country needs is, you know, a dictator like Trump who will clean America's house, right? Um, saying things like that versus the Republican Party leadership who say things like, you know, we don't really want this guy to be the nominee, but we don't see how to stop it. Um, you know, and so to me, that's been very fascinating. It's, of course, a parallel to what happened in 2016. Donald Trump hasn't participated in the primary process. He hasn't allowed for an actual fair primary process to happen, right? He has gone through it all as if he is the presumptive nominee. He hasn't participated in the debates, right? He hasn't um, done anything that would make it seem as though it was not already predetermined that he was going to be the nominee. Um, and so you can see even there that he does not um, participate in the democratic process and that he is very willing to violate democratic norms. Uh, the Republican Party has capitulated to that, right? Um, you know, it's the rest of the nation that is going to have to deal with the consequences of it. 
we'll see what they do. Right, but just in closing, you know, the the new Speaker of the House, uh, Mike Johnson, has capitulated, and like Comer and Jordan, all of these characters that are coming up with these phony impeachments, they're all taking orders from Trump. But in Mike Johnson's case, there seems to be a kind of alliance, a kind of Christo-fascist alliance of Christian nationalism, onward Christian soldiers. How does that sort of tie into, after all, you know, the prince, Jesus was the Prince of Peace, but you'd never know that from the, the kind of theology of people like Mike Johnson, who's obsessed with homosexuals and uh, etc. That's also another component, isn't it? Or at least an alliance, if you will. Oh, it absolutely and... is. Um, so this, the same scholars and researchers who have done work on right-wing authoritarianism have um, also studied high religiosity in relationship between that and right-wing authoritarianism. And that research is fascinating as well. What they found is that um, if you ask someone who is high on right-wing authoritarianism and high religiosity, and they're Christian, for example, if the United States should be made into a Christian nation and follow the Christian law, whatever they think that is, they will say, yes, absolutely. And if you say to the same high, re highly religious, right-wing authoritarian Christian, should some other nation make its uh, national religion, uh, you know, uh, Islam or whatever, they will say, no, absolutely not. Right. Because what about those people in that country who are not Islamic? Um, if you ask an atheist, should the United States abolish religion? They will say, no, absolutely not. People should be able to believe what they want to believe. And that to me is the difference between, uh, you know, the 60 percent of us who are not right wing authoritarians and those right wing authoritarians who are highly religious and who have like you say, partnered up with Trump um, and and have you know inserted themselves in the leadership of the Republican Party, uh, because those are the people who are in fact the true believers, the ones who um, believe that their right wing authoritarian values and norms are correct, that the religious hierarchy, as they understand it, should be um, implemented and enforced through the government. Um, and they have no qualms with that, right? They don't believe in the separation of church and state. They don't think that it should be anything other than um, a Christian nation. And so, um, yeah, everything that is liberal threatens the right-wing authoritarian, highly religious voter. And so they look to these strong leaders uh, to take, take, take control, to you know, be in charge. Well, Jennifer Machia, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And again, I've been speaking with Jennifer Machia, who's a professor in the Department of Communications at Texas A&M University, where she teaches courses on political communication and presidential rhetoric, an historian of American political discourse, especially discourses about citizenship, democracy, and the presidency. She's the co-editor of The Rhetoric of Heroic Expectations, Establishing the Obama Presidency, and author of Founding Fictions, as well as Demagogue for President, the rhetorical genius of Donald Trump. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.